Hello, and welcome to Rethinking Legal Ops, a podcast by Speed Legal. I'm Ashwari Saxena, and here we talk to legal experts, industry leaders, and innovators about the many ways that legal tech is transforming the way we practice law. another amazing guest with us, Tessa Manuelo. She is the CEO and founder of Legal Creatives, which is doing amazing work in uh, changing the way people look at legal documents and helping lawyers and professionals leverage the amazing powers of legal design in their careers and their work. Wonderful to have you here, Tessa. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to share. Thank you. And it's, it's even more exciting to have you here on um, Rethinking Legal Ops because this is where we have conversations about how the integration of law and technology are changing the way we practice law and just from our conversation a couple of minutes ago we were just discussing how there is such a big role for legal design to pay uh, to play in this digital transformation of law and I can't wait to unpack that a little bit more with you but before uh, just to start things off um, I'd love to learn about uh, what has been your professional journey so far and uh, how did you end up with uh, working with legal design? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, my professional journey, I could start a long time ago. I could start at 16, but I'm going to make it short. Um, and just to say, well, briefly, I, um, I started working in France where I was born, hence the French accent a little bit, um, in arbitration. So I started to work in the field of arbitration. That was about 15 years ago when at the time uh, arbitration was booming in the industry, in France, especially because of the International Chamber of Commerce, where I was working, uh, managing cases at the Chamber of Commerce, and realizing it already at that time that although arbitration is supposed to be a much faster way to resolve disputes, uh, I, I, I still was a little bit uh, a little bit shocked by how complex it could become and how expensive it could get as well. And so at that time, there was very little technology, there was very little innovation. So after some years working there, I have to say I felt a little bit hopeless about what kind of impact I can have given uh, everything in law is so traditional. And I felt like I could not really actualize myself in that very traditional environment. And and so I decided to just, you know, quit uh, my job, quit the, 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 the organization, quit even country and continent. And I moved to Canada where I decided to explore uh, new avenues. And this is where I discovered entrepreneurship. This is where I discovered innovation. And this is where I discovered creativity. And when I found out about creativity as a structured pro uh, methodology for solving problems and innovating, I was just, I just fell in love with it. And so I decided to bring this into the law. So I went back to university, uh, I acquired my third master after one in Sorbonne, then one in South Africa. That was the third one I got in uh, University of Sherbrooke in Canada. And I used that to really work on the research as to how we can use creative thinking in the legal uh, universe to be able to innovate. And that was really bold at the time. You, it was not something that was very well known. That was back in 2014, I guess. So that was very, very early. Uh, this is actually at the same time that Stanford Legal Design Lab did the experiments, but at the time it was not known. So I had no idea about it. 
And I came to know about legal design as a thing, as a name, uh, much later in this process. And hence, here I am teaching legal professionals on the Legal Creatives platform online how to use this methodology, how to use the tools, and how to be able to innovate. I love that. That really resonates with me when you're talking about, you know, creativity and innovation and, you know, just like this new way of thinking about uh, about legal work. When um, I was in law school, you know, it was uh, it was everything was sort of like taught in a very straightforward manner. Like, you know, this is the black letter of the law. This is a case. You read this, you apply and, you know, you advise your clients and, you know, do your work in that way. But I'm, I'm sort of loving this movement of, you know, changing that, adding creativity to legal work because there's just so much. Uh, scope for that, and, and thanks to people like you, that's uh, that's happening. So, so Tessa, what what do you think? Can you unpack a little bit more as to what is wrong with the way we approach our legal documents and the way we draft our contracts today? Well, the major problem we see is that legal documents, contracts, policies are drafted for other lawyers. Uh, so we are drafting everything thinking that another lawyer or potentially a judge is going to have to use the document when in fact especially for contracts the main user of the contract is the business owner um you know the the the, the, the basically the client the client is supposed to be the most important uh, user of the document because in the legal design methodology, we talk about users. We don't really say talk about parties. It's like, who are the people, the professionals that are going to have to use uh, the document or to complete the task we want them to complete? So in this case of the contract, it will be to comply with the contract, to perform the obligations of the contract, maybe to refrain from doing, you know, uh, forgetting deadlines. And, and because we want the contract to be a tool to empower the parties to accomplish, you know, a, a good, let's say it's a business to, to, to just uh, solidify a business relationship so they can achieve the business goals and objectives. So when we start to think of a contract, like a business document, or at least that's something that would give the foundations uh, to help the business grow and flourish, and that the people that are actually going to have to use the information in the contract are actually non-lawyers, then this is where we have a big challenge to overcome because how can we expect non-lawyers to understand all this technical language? And by using technical language, what we do is we just exclude them from the equation and then we just use the document to argue between lawyers all in front of a judge as to who's right and who's wrong. So what if we change this approach and start adopting a more user-centric approach to doing contracts, thinking about the user, in which language should I communicate to make sure that my user is going to understand and use the information? And that's a great way to deliver value because the value is going to be perceived by the user, is going to be received by the user, and that is going to help also give a lot of benefits for legal professionals to use this methodology. Absolutely. And I, I do want to emphasize one of the things you, you said as to how can we effectively communicate and what language do we effectively communicate when we're going through these sort of negotiations or you know, closing these like transactions. So Tessa, how do you think lawyers can 
communicate more effectively. I mean, you would you would think that like you know lawyers like we're taught oral and written communication, we're trained in it. But at the same time, um, I often feel like we are trained to communicate well with other lawyers, maybe, but perhaps not as well, you know, with with non-lawyers. So, what is your perspective on how lawyers can communicate better uh, without using uh, you know legalese or or jargon? Well, there's a lot of techniques that can be used to make the legal communication more effective when it comes to, the, to, to drafting contracts, for example. And it's a great question because I just recently delivered a mini workshop on this topic. So I have all this knowledge really fresh in my mind, which is really great because there are so many tools that we don't even know exist that we can use to communicate more effectively the information, starting with just creating a better information layout of the document. We see that documents and contracts are drafted as blocks of text, which make it really difficult for anyone, as a matter of fact, lawyers included, to process the information. When we start reorganizing the information in the document and finding different categories and connecting those categories and highlighting important information, and we start to make the document a lot easier to process, to scan, for the information to be also easier to be uh, searched and to, and to be remembered. In fact, there's great research that mentioned that using those methodologies can speed up negotiation, uh, also increase information retention. So just reorganizing the way the information is presented is already a great step. Of course, if you can simplify the language using plain language, then it gets even better because your sentences are shorter, your paragraphs are also well-organized, and then that makes it a lot easier for the user to understand the information and to be able to use it and to comply with it. Then, of course, this visual. So in addition to the organization layout and the plain language, you can use visuals in your contract. In fact, there is nothing that says that it is forbidden to add visuals in contracts. In fact, on the contrary, there's a lot of research that indicate that using visuals makes the information a lot more effective. Because when you present, for example, a flowchart to explain different steps instead of just text, it's just a lot easier to understand the trigger events that users need to pay attention instead of trying to figure out if this happened, then that is going to happen. Unless, you know, all of notwithstanding, this is just very complicated for non-lawyers to understand. So using flowcharts, using graphics, using icons, uh, aligning those icons, making it easy to scan, easy to process, easy to remember and to understand. So those are just a few of the strategies that can be used to communicate effectively. But the legal design is a lot more than that because we can think of making this contract digital. We can think of automating this contract, integrating technology, AI, even changing the way we work together or the way we deliver the service to the customer. So legal design is a lot more than the communication, but those are some strategies from the design thinking approach that we can use for contracts, but just being mindful that it is a lot more than just the communication and uh, using the visuals actually.
Absolutely. I, that really resonates with me. And I really like the way you put it in sort of steps, like let's start with just reorganization and then perhaps, you know, we can move on to, to change the language. And I really like how you sort of put it, like, you know, use, using sort of that if-when logic that, you know, a lot of people can easily understand rather than saying notwithstanding or provided that and therefore, and like, you know, therefore, like, which is even, you know. Exactly. Make, breaking it down into steps and making the steps more visual with flowcharts and other infographics makes the information more visually appealing, more interesting as well, and easier to understand. So there's lots of benefits from using it from the perspective of the lawyer as well as the perspective of the client. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I was once joking with a professor of mine and, and they said that, you know, uh, he, he was talking about how he finally understood that we got legal language wrong. <laughs> the way we drafted this when he was trying to draft a document and there were so many like typos that showed up on his like Grammarly tab and they were all just legalese. It was like notwithstanding, therefore, because the, the dictionary thought it was therefore and said therefore and uh, and things like that. And he was like, you know, even like, this is not part of regular grammar. Like, I don't know why we're still <laughs> using that. Um, and, and so, Tessa, you were talking about how we can integrate more technology, you know, alongside uh, legal design and, you know, communicate better, close transactions faster. What kind of legal technology tools uh, do you think um, are very, very applicable, um, you know, in combination with legal design that can actually make these processes go much more faster and more efficiently? Well, in fine, in terms of tools, so there are many design tools that can be used and there are many technological tools that can be used and legal technology that can be used. So there's lots of tools we can cover, but maybe uh, starting with the legal tech tools, because that's what you mentioned, especially. So legal technology is obviously going to be a major accelerator for lawyers to process the work and to deliver the outcomes the client because that's what clients want outcomes they don't want to buy time uh, they want the problems to be solved or their objectives to be reached so how can we start to think about delivering outcomes to the client well technology is going to be a huge accelerator because it can help in so many ways just uh, make automated some task automating some redundant tasks or even using artificial intelligence to do legal research and you know, making also the interaction between the lawyer and the customer a lot more digital friendly uh, online. So there's lots of tools that can be used, but I think where the legal design methodology works well is to be able to understand which tool is going to be the most suitable tool to achieve the goal. Because what legal design does is it helps understand the real problems that needs to be solved. And very often what happens is we think we need technology, but just because it's trendy or it's fancy or that's what we're supposed to do. But it's even more effective to integrate technology when we know exactly what are the problems we would like to solve. And so legal design is helping us understand with clear and precision what are the challenges we would like to solve. And so by doing this, then it's easier to find the right technology and to also help our users, so in this case, it will be most likely legal professionals, to adopt the tool and to make sure that the tool we use is going to be easy to adopt. Or if it's too difficult to adopt the tool, then how can we make this process easier? 
So legal design goes well with legal technology in the sense that it helps understand what are the problems we want to solve and what tools could potentially be the best tool to solve that, that problem. So whether it's digital transformation, whether it's automation, uh, whether it's just overall efficiency, uh, increasing customer loyalty, there are so many challenges we can tackle using legal design and legal technology. So I don't think it's one or the other. It should go hand on hand. And I don't think we have seen that enough yet in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I want to circle back to something that we were actually just talking about before we before we went live, and we were talking about communication between the legal team and the and and non-lawyer team members. Uh, Tessa, can you explain how important it is uh, to have that sort of collaborative, uh, you know, synchronization between these two teams, and um, and the importance of teamwork and where communication about legal issues fits into the into the equation. Yeah, well, in terms of teamwork and communication, uh, legal design can definitely help in the sense that it gives a structured approach to be able to take into account different perspectives and to be able to process those different insights and turn them into solutions that would be highly relevant to solve the problem. Because again, legal design starts with a challenge. We always start a legal design project or process with a challenge. And uh, at times framing the challenge is also a project within the project because it is the most critical uh, step given it's the first step and we wanna make sure we have established the right visions and we have understood also the right problem. And so then when we think about working with non-lawyers or other business units in an organization, we want to be able to integrate their point of view. But just, you know, walking through the door, going on a Zoom call and asking for their feedback or ideas is not an effective way to do that. In fact, the legal design methodology is giving us clear steps that we can use to be able to collect those feedbacks, use the insights and turn them into something that will become meaningful because we use our creativity, we prototype, we test. And so using those steps, it becomes a lot easier to integrate the ideas of non-lawyers to take into account their perspective, to understand their needs, their expectations. And so we can better provide the service. I love that, um, you know, especially the part where you're talking about integrating, you know, the skill sets and, uh, you know, like the knowledge of other you know, non-lawyer team members and creating innovative legal solutions, not just providing uh, legal advice because, you know, traditionally it's it's been that, you know, issues go to the legal, then they give out advice and then the rest of the team, like, you know, to decide what to do with it. But it would be just so much more, um, so much better if they could just work together, which leads me to um, the next question, Tessa, and which is about how have you seen the role of in-house counsels or in-house um, legal teams evolve over time from um, just being, you know, this like separate department to uh, strategic business partners today? Well, this evo evolution is uh, unfolding right now with legal design, but also legal ops, legal technology, legal project management also, Legal project managers have uh, a, also a huge contribution uh, in this field. And so what we are seeing now today is more and more in-house lawyers 
wanting to acquire those skills, wanting to learn more about legal ops, legal design, legal project management, legal technology, including communication and collaboration so we can maximize teamwork. So what we see today is that those professionals who dare to be a little bit uh, bolder and maybe a bit more creative actually find themselves to be more successful because that's what is needed and required in today's world where everything changed so fast, uh, where you know the, 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 the problems we need to solve are, are so much more complex. There is not necessarily one single solution to a, a legal problem. Uh, although there is there is one one truth, but the way then to also implement the solution and make sure the solution is going to stick uh, with the user, this all of that needs to be taken into account. So what we are seeing is a lot more professionals interested to learn and uh, being able to use this knowledge actually fairly quickly. I was talking to some of our members uh, earlier today and yesterday, and it's just amazing how quick they are able to use what they learn because, well, it's practical. It's about practicing the skills and using the techniques to try new things, to experiment, and to be able also to have the courage to do it and not just talk about it. Absolutely. And when you're designing, you know, in, in your work, when you're deciding um, like courses and, you know, educational materials to teach people exactly this, you know, they, um, practicing their skill maybe a little bit differently, you know, with like a fresher perspective with like, you know, integrating a new skill, legal design into the way they practice law. What are the key considerations that you keep in mind while designing your own uh, courses? Well, when designing courses specifically and educational material, you always have to think about the outcome and the final output you would like the student to be able to accomplish. It's not about my output as a trainer, as a teacher, as a coach, it's about the, the student, the person who's learning. When I say student, I mean legal professionals who are learning this. And so what do I want them to be able to do one day, once they have the material? And so the idea is to break down all of the steps in a very practical manner, very precise as well, because you don't want to leave any room for confusion. So what I always do is I always think, how can I teach this in a way that is going to be very actionable, step-by-step -step process, easy to understand, easy to apply, without necessarily you know, missing out on the precision, but making it like really, really practical. And I think this is what is missing in law school today, or even to some extent in the legal continuing education. What we learn is so theoretical. And then it is left for the lawyer to be able to understand how to apply this in practice. When the way I teach is 80% of practice and 20% of theory. And the reason for that is especially because of legal design is a methodology that is only, can, you can only get the benefits and even get to understand how it works once you apply it. And so because it can be a little difficult to apply it in the real life for the first time, we do offer a lot of space to actually experiment and practice within our immersion programs. So instead of just you know, saying here how you would do the, what we call the user research, which means understanding the needs of the customer and going through some rounds of interviews to understand the needs instead of just giving the theory and then hoping 
hoping people are going to do the interview themselves and it's going to go perfect, which is, would not be the case. We, we do the interviews, we do practice during the immersion. So I think this practical element is so important when we teach and, uh, and when we teach also to the future lawyers to be able to be more business oriented and not just focused on the law. So I think today we're going to we see a huge challenge for law schools and legal students, law students, because law is unfortunately not enough. Law is like you need to know it to become a legal professional, but you need to know communication, you need to know technology. You probably also would benefit tremendously from knowing a little bit of psychology um, and behaviors, you know, human behaviors. And, uh, you know, maybe using some design skills, like purely designed to communicate better with visuals and, and just so, so much more, there's so much more we need to learn and how to collaborate with others, how to work with other professionals to be able to better understand them and to work in a multidisciplinary manner or interdisciplinary manner, which is really integrating the knowledge to create something new. Totally. And, you know, this reminds me of one of the conversations I had actually in this podcast in a previous episode uh, with uh, Kevin Keller. And he was he was talking about how his uh, skills as an engineer, uh, he went to uh, engineering school before he became a lawyer, actually also help him, you know, be uh, be a better lawyer because he could just leverage all these additional skills. So when you were talking about, you know, this interdisciplinary approach to, you know, learning the law, I, I really love that. Um, I, I think mm -hmm. that um, it's especially important because as a science, law exists within the sphere of society and there's so much that goes on in the society. It cannot be separated from all these other disciplines, especially when it comes to um, law that actually uh, regulates technology. There has to be a technical uh, element to that particular law as well. So I really appreciate how you put it there. Um, it is now time for some of our uh, audience questions that we welcome. Nice. Uh, so my first question that I have here is um, someone asks, at what stage in your uh, legal career do you need to start learning about legal design? Um, can you learn it at a later stage in your career if you've been practicing for a while already? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, uh, there there is, I think the perfect, how can I say that? There is no, uh, it's not because you have practiced for 30 years or even 40 years that legal design won't be useful. I think legal design is useful whether you are an experienced lawyer or even a young practitioner. Uh, the earlier you learn, the better it gets because what we see is if, uh, you know, when, when we think of law school, we are training law students to work in a very traditional way and so the problem with that is once law students enter the market uh, there's already there's a bit of a disconnect between what the market expects to get from lawyers and what they have been trained to do so obviously if we were to teach legal design earlier in the education that would help to avoid having young lawyers already kind of uh, so anchored into this really traditional way of practicing. And I don't say that no, I don't say that it is bad to be a traditional lawyer and that it is better to be uh, using legal design, but I just say depending on what the market needs and the market 
tend to need to want more and more of those more innovative lawyers that are able to really understand the problems. And recently, I have an example. We had a Web3 legal design hackathon. So we were discussing and exploring uh, solutions for the legal challenge of Web3 and NFTs and DAOs. And uh, it was so interesting because we had the business community there and they were so impressed by, by the quality of the work and the way lawyers work because of this innovative approach. And so there are still clients that will want a traditional lawyer, but we're seeing more and more interest from a more innovative approach. So if we were to teach that uh, earlier in the process, it would definitely be helpful, but there is no deadline or timeline. You can learn this at any point in your career. As long as you have an open mind and you are ready to explore something that could potentially be very different because in the legal design, according to the methodology, we are exploring the point of view of the user. So we are doing this shift of perspective. So when we design a contract, for example, we take the perspective of the user, which is a very different perspective from the perspective of the lawyer. So as long as we are open to embracing a new way to do things and that we are willing to experiment and also willing to ask for the feedback because feedback is very important in the methodology that we do through what we call user tests to make sure that actually the new design works better than the previous one. We never make hypothesis. We never say because it has visuals, it's better. In fact, sometimes visuals can be even worse because they are not precise enough and they can be very confusing and misleading. So we always want to test to make sure our users actually understand the information. And so to do that, it requires an open mind. It requires an interest to learn something new, to experiment, and to be able then to do that professionally with their own customers. So I have seen, uh, I have in our, in our community, I have like uh, lawyers who have 30, 35 years of experience and some of them who have just five or 10 years of experience. And it's just so great to be able to see everybody supporting each other on this journey to learning the methodology and to applying it for, di different, um, for different objectives. Some of them are working in the edition, legal edition, others are working in construction, some are working uh, in, with business and startups. And so everyone has different spheres of expertise, but the same objective to want to learn and to be more user-centric. Exactly. And, and you know how they tell you in law school that like uh, a lawyer is, I think, a constant student. I think we all are in general in life. But I think with like lawyers, we also have this element of continuing legal education. So I think like, as you said, never, never too late to learn. Yeah, that. never too late. Absolutely. Um, never too late. I love that. Um, and so the next question is, uh, is legal design a separate area of legal practice of its own? And if so, do you see companies and law firms hiring legal design professionals in addition to in-house or other attorneys? Yes, absolutely. So we're starting to see more and more legal design becoming a profession in itself and a field of practice. So that means professionals who have a legal background and have a, a very... A, a, a lot, are very interested in doing this like full time, you know, wanting to do this full time. We are seeing more and more of those professionals uh, either uh, applying for jobs or even uh, just uh, organizations creating jobs for them because they see the value 
and, the, and this very limited resource of legal design professionals today available on the market. Oh, we are seeing also some of them starting their own consultancy, uh, solo uh, within a small uh, group of practitioners to be able to deliver legal design services. So what we see happening today is more and more legal design positions being opened, uh, but we have to be aware that there are a lot less options than a traditional uh, legal job. So I'm not saying you can easily find a legal job tomorrow. I mean, you could if you're really motivated, if you have uh, acquired the knowledge, if you have a portfolio, then you can convince an employer that this is a great value. And I have seen many people doing that. They were working as traditional lawyers in a law firm or in a legal department and uh, sharing the value of what they have learned about legal design and, and the results that they could get. They actually got promoted. Uh, they got to become legal designers. So it does happen. Um, but it, we are still at the beginning. What we see is every single year we see more and more job opportunities. Uh, legal departments looking for legal designers, legal design agency hiring to hiring legal designers too. So we're seeing more and more opportunities. So obviously, there are opportunities, but you need to position yourself well to be able to save them. And the best way to do that is to show you have practiced what you preach, so that you have a portfolio uh, where you share. Look at the design. I have done of this contract. It doesn't even have to be a work you have done for a real client. Of course, it's always better if you can do it with a real client. But in the beginning, usually it's a bit difficult, right? To uh, So you would need to practice, just like what designers would do. They don't wait for the first client to do logos. They do logos so they can get the first client, right? So we need to do that as well. We need to start practicing the skills, making those visuals for contracts, redesigning workflows, what we call service design blueprint, and then show that in the portfolio. And that makes it a lot more convincing for people to consider your application and to hire you. Great. I think that you put it uh, absolutely well, just like keeping on, you know, uh, honing and practicing that skill so like you could just jump in and, and use it when, when there is a need. Uh, the next question is, um, this is this is one I'm actually very curious about uh, personally. Do you have to be a lawyer to practice legal design or um, is it an, an open field for other professionals as well? So that's a great question because legal design is all about collaboration and working in a team where you have different expertise. It is actually very rare that you will find legal designer that can do absolutely everything, meaning doing the design professionally, doing the legal analysis professionally, doing the testing, the prototyping, building the technology. It is very rare. It does exist, but usually even if you have the expertise, you would hire people to work with you on the project. Given, uh, you know, we have just, everyone has limited time. We have 24 hours in a day and 30, 365 days in the year. So you need to be efficient. And the best way to be efficient is to hire uh, other experts that can help you uh, and bring this expertise for you. So what we see is uh, we see more and more lawyers becoming legal designers, working in collaboration with other experts. We also see designers who have no legal background being interested and working with lawyers to do that. So we do see non-lawyers in this market helping lawyers uh, use the methodology hand on hand. So again, the key here is collaboration. So if you're a non-lawyer, you, 
non-lawyers would understand that they need to work with the lawyer to make sure that they comply within, uh, you know, within the law. So you don't need to be a lawyer to be a legal. I mean, a legal designer, I think legal designer name, I don't like it so much, a legal designer, because if you really want to be a legal designer, you would need to be a qualified lawyer and a qualified designer. And there are very few people that have done that in their career. There are a few, but you don't need to do that. You need to work in collaboration with designers or with the lawyers who can, so you can unlock the creativity and really be more innovative in the way you work. So does it answer the question? Yeah, yeah, I think you answered it perfectly. Yeah, 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 you did. So yeah, maybe I could add something that is, you don't need to be um, like a, you, we see more and more uh, job offers where it is not required for you to be a registered lawyer. So you sometimes we see uh, offers where legal background, uh, but not necessarily being a practitioner, a lawyer, you know, like having a legal background, having a legal master or um, whatever kind of legal background, but not necessarily being a lawyer because it's all about, again, the collaboration. Yeah. Exactly. And again, like bringing in and leveraging the skills of other professionals into into law as well. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining like I think lawyers can do a lot of really cool work if they just collaborated with like a like a visual designer, you know, someone that thinks yeah. visually and that could be that could be a lawyer or that could just be like, you know, a design. Yeah. Uh, so they are they are lawyers specialized in this. So you could get specialized in as a lawyer creating those visual communication pieces or those visual contracts. But you could be a designer and uh, you could be doing this in partnership with a lawyer that would know the local laws. Um, so it's so fascinating, the opportunities that we have, because also with legal design, given it's a universal human-centered methodology, the legal design is not necessarily attached to a specific jurisdiction or even a field of law. So it's the same methodology, it's the same process you would use if you were in the United States or if you were, uh, say, I don't know, in Japan or in Brazil, you would use the same steps because those steps have proven to work. Uh, because before we use, before using legal design, it was design thinking, and design thinking had been here for for decades and has been used in so many industries. And now we use it in law and we call it legal design, but it's the same methodology that is centered on understanding the needs of the users thinking creatively about the solution, prototyping the solution, and testing it. And so what's great about that is people who work in legal design work with clients all around the world uh, because their clients know the local laws. They don't need to learn the local laws. They have already the clients. So it's about using the existing knowledge and not reinventing the wheel and being more efficient that way. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. Like not reinventing the wheel, but like, you know, borrowing and taking, you know, from what uh, has already already been done and like using it uh, and adapting it to your own templates and formats. I love that. I actually have a follow up question just about that. Uh, you know, just thinking of legal design and its importance, apart from communication, I'm also thinking about the business element of uh, legal design. Um, so Tessa, how do you think businesses can actually leverage legal design to, uh, and including law firms, of course, to create this unique identity of, of their own, like, you know, just using specific types of design techniques that really puts them away from the, yeah. from other law firms or other lawyers? 
Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing more and more lawyers leveraging this methodology to create a very unique approach to practicing the law. And so when we talk about personal branding, you know, that's what legal design helped us achieve. Uh, build a personal brand that is so different and that is so effective because also of showing that this works. It's not just more beautiful or more visual, but actually it works better, that actually people understand better the information, they're able to use information more effectively, and that potentially lead to better business outcomes. Well, at times it's very difficult to prove the correlation until the business outcomes, but at least to prove that people can understand better, that is pretty easy to, to prove that and to measure that. And so when you, as a lawyer, you start using this methodology to create some contracts that can be potentially very different, but still very effective, then obviously you create an amazing brand for yourself because it is very difficult to, to do those things because it does require a lot of creativity. So once you reach that point where you have enough creativity, enough experience and understanding of the methodology to be able to do something that is super different, super effective, and uh, that users really enjoy and, and, and find that it's more useful for them, then of course you create a blue ocean for yourself because nobody can have those skills or this visual style. So this is where it gets super interesting and exciting for people that have this creativity, uh, that have this uh, creative vibe or interest into creativity to create something very unique. And so we do see many legal designers that have develop amazing brand and it's just so unique and so amazing and so inspiring and everyone get inspired and everyone is kind of playing with its own skills and talents so you don't have to be like them because there is only one you can only be yourself so the idea of legal design is also to understand what are your talents and skills and interests you know the igikai i don't know if you know the igikai concept from the japanese concept of you know, finding what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what the world is getting to ready to be paid for. Then when you find this igikai, this sweet spot, then there's only one, it's you. And so then it's great for if people want to work with you, then there you are, there you are. Yeah, and what a wonderful way to, to say it. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to remember that and I'm sure our uh, listeners are, you know, also taking notes, but what a wonderful way of putting that, um, you know, to say finding out what is needed in the world and just like, you know, being that person, uh, you know, who can contribute to that. And wow, so meaningful. Um, well, this has been wonderful, Tessa, uh, chatting with you. I learned so much about legal design. I think it's a fascinating field that I'm personally very interested in and I'd love to con continue the conversation with you. And um, on um, on a note to end, uh, Tessa, what is next for you and, and legal creatives? Are there any exciting projects you're working on? Well, thank you for the question and thank you again for having me and for all the, the questions from the audience as well. I appreciate that. Well, uh, the next step for us is uh, we have a legal design immersion that is coming up in September. So those of you who may want to dive deep into legal design, I would be so excited to have you in the program. And uh, next year we're going to have, uh, I think, uh, uh, really good because we've, we've been I've been running Lego Credit for five years now. We started online before the pandemic. Imagine so we have lots and lots and lots of material available on the platform. And so next year the idea is to consolidate what we already have and uh, make it even better. 
uh, to support the community. So it would be like a big cohort we would have early next year where we would go through different steps to be able to empower lawyers who would like to use the legal design methodology in their day-to-day -day work. Not necessarily becoming a legal designer, that is more for the immersion with certification, but people who want to use the methodology to start making some uh, small or bigger changes in the way they practice the law, I think this could be very exciting. So this is the next step. Wonderful. I'm really looking forward to that. And I highly encourage listeners to, to check out you know, the future projects of Legal Creatives as well. Thank you so much again, Tessa. It's been wonderful. And thank you to all our wonderful audiences for tuning in and for all your questions. Really appreciate them. We're here every Thursday with more amazing guests. So stay tuned. And uh, thank you so much, everyone. And thank you, Tessa. Thank you. The practice of law is changing and we're here for it. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of Rethinking Legal Ops. Follow us for more such insightful conversations about the transformative impact of legal tech. Also, follow Speed Legal and let us know in your comments and messages about how you leverage legal tech solutions to make your work more efficient. See you next time.